year two and three, we grew maybe 10%. And then from year three to four, we grew 1,300%. I think it was like 150,000 in sales to 1.8 million. And most of that was finding how to position the product on digital marketing platforms. So like once we found it on say Facebook, we found some keywords that worked for us as well. We were able to increase spend and keep scaling. This podcast is sponsored by Klaviyo, the email and text marketing platform that puts D2C brands in control. If you're the leader of a D2C brand, you need a platform that hustles as hard as you do. Klaviyo unlocks the power of your e-commerce data so you can personalize and automate messages that keep customers coming back. D2C brands communicate with Klaviyo. Start for free at klaviyo.com DTC. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot DTC. Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick, and today I am extremely happy to have one of my personal favorite brands on the show, Bushbaum. Uh, we've connected with David Gaylord, the CEO of Bushbaum, uh, which is one of Canada's fastest growing D2C brands on pace for eight figures in 2021. Now, Bushbaum is an evolving natural skincare product line specifically, but not limited to focusing on the areas that are often commonly ignored. David is a true thought leader when it comes to scaling D2C brands, and he's fully embraced the concept of building in public while he builds on pubics. Again, sorry for the, the pun there. Welcome to the show, David. Could you start a little bit with your brand's origin story? Yeah. So the, the brand started while I was working at uh, Shopify. So it started actually about five years ago. Um, and me and uh, another coworker at Shopify, as well as his wife, uh, started it. So the origin story is uh, kind, of, kind of funny, but we, we just had an article written about us and we never said this line, but someone said uh, it was something that he couldn't find at room service. Um, so what happened is my, my business partner, Tim, he used his his beard oil all over his body. And it, it basically started this conversation of maybe we can make something for your pubic region or your armpits or like moisturizing places you don't normally moisturize. Um, and it all started uh, while they were on their honeymoon and uh, he was essentially trying to freshen up. Just amazing. That's such, you know, I think as, especially as a man, you, you just, you, you do what needs to be done. And so I liked, I liked that realization you had that when you actually take care of things, it works out better because when you don't use these products, you get bumps, you get irritation. I think this is something that everyone can kind of low key relate to. Yeah, totally. And it's one thing that often most people like won't talk about ingrown hairs, like razor burn. Um, no one really talks about it. And that was in the early days, kind of what we were what we were after and what we were trying to build. Um, but five years ago, we didn't actually know what, what it was. Like it honestly took us three years at least to understand our like value proposition and how to position it. And even like changing the formulas, it took at least three years to, to kind of get it right. And we're still always changing it, but for now it's, it's, made to stay, I suppose. Shout out to Shopify. I know my brother works at Shopify, I was saying in the in the early part there, I think he's been there for five years now. And the amount of sort of freedom you have in a company like that to actually to start brands, like I know they're actually encouraging employees, like employees are supposed to have their own Shopify stores. Can you talk a little bit about building your company out of that environment? Like what, what was it like when you, you know, were at Shopify full time and you started to have a product that you knew, was, you know, had the chance to take off? Were they fully supportive? Yeah, yeah. The company isn't like amazing for kind of supporting you. And, and actually, we started Bushbomb because internally at the company, they had a build a business competition. There used to be the, the public one that was much larger, obviously. And then they did an internal one for employees to, to learn the platform. And 
like see how it works and understand what like a, a merchant or an entrepreneur goes through. So we, that's how we started. We, we didn't win the competition, but it was like a, a two month period of sales. And I don't think we had any, but I think long-term we, we might've won the long-term uh, competition in general. Um, but yeah, no, a company's so supportive and it, it's one of those things where I don't think you truly understand entrepreneurship and what an entrepreneur goes through until you like lose $500 on Facebook ads or you lose like inventory goes rotten or something happens and ruins your, your, whatever you have, you kind of need to go through the pain to understand like how difficult it really is. It's something in this industry, you know, we, we come from an agency. I've been in performance marketing kind of my whole career. You're always walking the line with your team where you want to foster entrepreneurship and you want to, it's funny, Pilot House now, the agency we work for essentially views um, itself as a, as a incubator in some ways, because it's like, they really want to take advantage of everyone's entrepreneurial uh, nature and allow them to funnel it kind of into the company and into things that benefit the sort of company ecosystem. Is this kind of a philosophy that you've maintained, uh, with your company uh, that, that you had at Shopify, where you're sort of encouraging employees to have that entrepreneurial mindset? Yeah. Uh, I, sometimes I don't go with like the entrepreneurial, uh, wording, but in general, I just go with like the skill building side of it. So many people like on our team in general is like, come, come work for us and have opportunities to build certain skills. And then in the future, you will be hopefully more desirable for say other companies or you'll, you'll grow and flourish here. Um, so yeah, we're always just like, encouraging people to like take their learning to the next level, whether that is with the company, with another company or in entrepreneurship. Um, so yeah, I try to get that from Shopify, but I don't have a, they have just like the easiest play to say, like start a store. Like it's such a, such a nice way to get people to use the product internally because it's, it's so straightforward. Um, but with Bushbaum, we have kind of less of that and more about, Hey, try to learn and get better at supply chain or, or whatever it is. How big is your team now? So we're six full-time employees right now. Um, and then we have, uh, quite a few, uh, part-time employees, uh, kind of across different places. And then we have some consultants we work with. So kind of some ad, ad consultants. We have, uh, a couple more strategic uh, consultants that we work with quite regularly that we got introduced to. Um, and then we've outsourced a, a lot of the business as well when it comes to kind of 3PL fulfillment. Um, we have a good 10 to 15 different manufacturers we work with, um, kind of outsource some chemistry as well. Uh, but yeah, six full-time all the time and then the rest either part-time or consultants. Can you talk a little bit about your growth? So I, I've, I was reading in, in the research ahead of time just how fast you guys have been growing. I, I see a quote about you talking about it. it's kind of shocking how quickly the demand has increased. How do you, what do you credit um, that level of growth for? Is it hitting a great product at the right time while the market is kind of exploding for the demand for this? Or is it, uh, is it been your digital marketing that really got it in front of the right people? Yeah, I, I would say for the, the most part, we found our like unique value proposition and how to position the product. So that, that took us, like, imagine year two, two and three, we grew maybe 10%. And then from year three to four, we grew like 1,300%, something like that. So we went from, I think it was like 150,000 in sales to like 1.8 million. And, and most of that was finding like how to position the product in the right ways on digital marketing platforms. So like once we found it on, say, Facebook, um, we found some keywords that worked for us as well. We were able to just increase spend and keep scaling. And what we realized is we sound like a niche, very niche brand, 
like originally we were like pubic care. So that sounds like very niche. Um, but what we realized is like a, a lot of people go through the challenges that uh, we're kind of solving. So like a lot of people get ingrown hairs, razor burn, hyperpigmentation. So they're, they're very niche sounding, but they're actually really big markets. So we've been able to say hit at the right time um, and take advantage, especially of like there's a lot of chemi chemical or alcohol based products. And we've gone in with like a, the natural approach for kind of the same problem. And we've just positioned it that way and it's worked really well. And then on top of that, it's a market that seems to be quite large and people kind of go through these skin, skin challenges all the time. How much have you leveraged sort of pain points? Because, you know, when I think of the, even just saying razor burn or ingrown hairs or all of these things, they're so evocative and there's something people have experienced. They're things that people don't necessarily like to talk about. My mind goes to like Facebook or, or native ads where you would show something like close up and you don't know what it is and it just gets people to click it. Like how much have you, have you leveraged pain points and act like that visceral nature of your specific pain points in your marketing? So the way we, we've done it is we look at like skin concerns people have. And then we're building products for those concerns. Um, and in our marketing, we're actually, uh, I would say, less about being vague and more about being very specific. So where it's like, it solves this, it solves this, it takes this many weeks. Or like, here are the ingredients and here's uh, what, what it's looking to solve. So we, we really do tackle the pain points. And one thing we realized too is not only are we're very specific about our products and the names of the products, and that helps with other things like search. So people are searching the issue, the challenge with product at the end or treatment. And we come up for those things as well. So instead of being like product name based, we've actually gone with like solution based names, which has helped on kind of other parts of the business that we didn't even realize like SEO. I love it. So you got Bush Bomb. Obviously, you've just launched your Tush product as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we just launched it. My wife it is keeping very close tabs. Yeah, yeah. We launched it about uh, two or three weeks ago um, now. And it's, it's actually our first um, launch into a completely new product line. Um, so skin firming, kind of elasticity. So that product line is totally different than what we have uh, done before. And our plan with the business is to basically, we didn't want to put ourselves and position ourselves just as the pubic care company. So like hair removal below the belt, like, for us, we're actually about kind of what we're calling it skincare everywhere. And we want to really tackle skin concerns that you might have, no matter how niche they sound, but also like no matter how niche the location might be. So there weren't many products for pubic care. We made lots of products. Um, what we're re realizing right now is there's not many products for like underarm care. So we're, we're making like more specific products for that specific area. So yeah, our, our plan is instead of going hyper-focused on the original, it's like, let's expand it and do what we've done before and in different places. I love it. I, I, I'm excited for the naming convention there. Is it going to be Pit Bomb or because <laughs> Bush Bomb and Tush, it, it is Tush Bomb, the new product, or is it just it, called? It's actually Tush, but I had, just called I had Tush. a lot of fighting with uh, the team on this because I wanted to call it Tush Bomb because Tush Bomb by Bush Bomb is like a beautiful name. Um, it is. And the, the, name, the name Bush Bomb actually started because... Um, we, we wanted to launch a bomb. That was our first product we wanted back in the day, but we realized the chemistry on that was much more difficult than say doing an oil to start. So we ended up doing an oil and to this day, we still don't have a bomb. So Bush bomb is, is originally we wanted it to be a bomb and, and we never got around to it. What makes something a bomb? I just got to know. Is it, is it the, the wax in it? Like what makes it a bomb? Yeah, I'm not actually sure, but yeah, it's like more closer to like a like obviously a cream would have way more chemistry involved than uh, just doing like an oil blend. 
Um, so a balm is, is closer to a cream where there's much more mixing and chemistry required for stability. Um, so yeah, we just, ne we never got around to it and, uh, probably for the better, I'd say. So with, on the line of these products, you, you now, sorry, it was six products that you have now. Um, I'm not sure how many SKUs we actually have six plus the, we're probably at close to 10 SKUs total. And, and how, every time you add a SKU, how much complexity does it add to your business? Like overall across the whole, the whole piece. Cause I might, you've got so many different touch points with each new product that you add, whether it's new suppliers, it's entirely new marketing campaigns in some ways. Like can you just talk a little bit about what it's like to, to add, add SKUs and the complexity it adds to the business. So in general, the complexity of the business, what I've realized over the years is actually early on, we were full-time at Shopify and we didn't have time really for the business. So what happened was we had to make these decisions and understand like the trade-offs. So if you do D to C and wholesale, that's almost twice as much work to manage. So we, we made the trade-off and we said, we're not doing any wholesale to start. We're only D to C. So we built it out that way. So on the supply chain side, like most people went through this last year, um, we got so busy. We scaled so fast. Supply chain became so difficult to manage. Um, shipping was delayed. We were dealing with all kinds of manufacturers. So for us, we, we don't actually have a calculus to it, but how I see it is anytime you bring on a new marketing channel, you really almost have to bring on a new employee. Maybe it's like a part-time employee, but you, you kind of have to bring someone else to manage it because one person can't manage all these social channels. It becomes much too much work for, for one person. Um, and, and product development for us has been kind of the same where if you bring out a new product and it doesn't sell, but you have to reorder certain amounts, it, it becomes really hard. So we we're pretty strategic about kind of our product roadmap, knowing what products we need to really move and what product can kind of sit on the shelf and it's less risky to do. Um, but yeah, anytime you bring on more products and if you look at our website right now, we're going through a challenge of how do we position all these products to make it easier for people to understand what to buy. So the merchandising component all of a sudden with new product lines is, is much different. And the selling proposition used to be so clear and it hears exactly what it is because it was only for one product. So now we're getting into the world of landing pages. We've, we've spun up kind of 10, 15 different landing pages that we have to use um, to convert our ads and move them through the funnel. So yeah, uh, new products, new supply chain issues, new marketing channels, they all add like more complexity altogether. New cross sells and upsells and things like that, I imagine. Are you doing much of that in your, in your purchase flows? Yeah, we have an app called, uh, I think it's something candy, candy rack upsell, I believe it's called. I just learned about candy rack yesterday. We're trying to get in touch with them about sponsoring the newsletter. So if you know, yeah. them, send, them a, send them a good note. Yeah, we, we've had a good, good time using them. We're, we're usually, we don't use many apps on the store. And this has been one that's actually been quite effective. So we, we've set those up. A lot of it's manual right now. Um, but in the future, probably in the next uh, three months, we're launching a new, a new website that will do much more flows and custom builds for kind of the, we're calling it the routines that, that people should buy. Mm. If you have X skin concern, you want to solve it with a certain routine. So we really want to get people on kind of the routine that will help. Um, but our site right now doesn't do it so well. So we're going to custom build one. Uh, pretty soon. I love that. And that idea of routine is how you're going to think about uh, categorizing and, and making the customer experience around your products. Yeah, exactly. And then for us, it's like longevity, right? Because a routine becomes part of your kind of daily routine, your weekly routine, whatever it is. So we want people to look at our products as, uh, as an essential item that they're using because it's part of their, say, skincare routine. 
Um, so that that's a, that's how we're looking at it, and we just have to build the tech to support it. But right now, we're not quite there. Not to get too graphic, but during quarantine, uh, you know, and and there there weren't as many social situations, so we, there probably weren't as many occasions to properly take care of the neglected parts of your body. Are you seeing like a a, a boost in sales, kind of as the world opens back up? Um, not right now. Um, what what I've said is. Uh, well, Bushbomb, we, we have a few different slogans we say. Like one is bushy or bare, we don't care. So um, essentially, if if you grow your hair, pubic hair, whatever it is, you, you might want a moisturizer down there. Um, we also have a trimmer if you'd like to trim. Um, but also, we're, we're really popular, popular with waxing salons. So at the start of COVID, we launched a trimmer and we saw great sales for the trimmer because people were at home, they wanted a trimmer. Um, and then now things are opening up, waxing salons are opening up. So all of the waxing salons we work with, they're they're buying the post-wax oil that they always buy, they love. More people are buying those products. So um, I've said we're, we're kind of like recession-proof when it comes to pubes. They just never go to style. They're, you're either trimming them, you're grooming them, or you're waxing them. Whatever you're doing, we're, we've got products for you. I love it. I, I was going over your Twitter feed here earlier, and what, a tweet stood out to me because it's something that we're experiencing on our side. You were talking about the MailChimp story, and you said you were amazed the amount of times they hit when they tested new media. And you said, makes me question sticking primarily to what others are doing for marketing. And I think that's something that people get caught up in a lot is this idea of like a D2C playbook. And I know, you know, you've been doing this for five years. I know in a lot of ways, like you're one of the people kind of writing this D2C playbook. And I wanted to know, how do you balance, um, you know, trailblazing versus trying to follow kind of what others have done successfully? And where have you found the most success so far with Bushbaum? of those two paths? I, I guess the, the, the most success now, like in the early days, it, for us, it was hard to take risks because we weren't fully invested. We weren't taking large amounts of money out and putting it into other things. So in the early days, the, the biggest uh, thing that helped sales was, was almost the basics. So imagine sending an email once a week, making sure you had all your email flows set up, making sure your prospecting tool worked really, really well, converted really high. Um, setting up those things actually made a world of difference. Um, and now that we're at a certain size, that MailChimp uh, podcast, it really hit because I thought, now we have this opportunity to try new things and kind of risk it in different directions. So for us, we're, I wouldn't call it anything like trailblazing, but we're kind of taking stabs with influencers right now. And we're, we're running a bunch of campaigns with all kinds of influencers on different channels to see and experience it. And so far, what it's done is it's returned, you know, pr pretty good, but it's also like opened our eyes up to like the potential of certain things. So it, it's been a great experiment and I would love to do more like that. Um, the hard part I find is you get so into the day to day that it's hard to like take a step back and try something new because you're trying to just make the engine keep going. Um, so yeah, I, I really want to set aside an X budget um, for influencers. We've set aside between usually it's 10 to 20 grand a month. And like, it's like the team go spend it on whatever you want and then just track it and we'll see like how it did. So that kind of freedom to the team has been, been great, but uh, it's still really directed. So I eventually want to open it up to interesting other partnerships or ideas. Um, just not quite there. I like that. It's, I, I think of like uh, 
you know, laying down railroad tracks. And before the, you do that, you've got to clear the land in a way, right? And, and it's like, even even though you're just experimenting in, in all these different ways with influencers right now, you're also late, you know, you're clearing the land so that when you do find something that works, you can kind of lock into it and, and hopefully replicate it and scale it. Yeah, exactly. We're trying to build the playbook for just something new that we've never done. Um, so regardless, the team's learning like a ton along the way. Um, and yeah, hopefully it, hopefully it does scale and we can keep, keep doing it. Right. Cause that's, that's ideal. What platforms are you focused on in this influencer, micro influencer kind of campaign? Um, for the most part, we're doing a good amount on Instagram. Like if you see most of our campaigns, they'll be on Instagram, but we're really eager. We've done a few on uh, TikTok. and the other one that we're, we're working on, which takes, I'm finding it takes a little bit longer is YouTube to find the right uh, YouTuber that can, can work with us and kind of more educational. So that those are the three I would say right now, mostly Instagram, but I think soon we'll have a lot of TikTok and a few bigger ones on on YouTube for sure. TikTok has just come into my life like a hurricane in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and, and just as a platform, I haven't been sort of enamored with a platform like this uh, as I have in a while. And and it co- also coincided with this idea, you know, we've been growing our user base, our listener base, our subscriber base uh, through Facebook ads for quite a while now since the beginning. Um, and we just started testing into TikTok. I've started to see some of our competitors on TikTok. And it's just, we've just made the decision like this week, we're going to shift some of our budget there because we're actually seeing more engaged users at a cheaper cost kind of from the platform. So uh, I think just always, yeah, keeping keeping open to, to new channels uh, and being willing to, to move some budget and, and testing them when you see, especially when you see initial success, um, it's, it's got to be a no-brainer yeah. for people just to diversify as well, right? Yeah, I've got like a lot of random thoughts on like diversifying, like your spend in different ways. And in the early days, I find your every single human being is telling you to diversify. They're like, oh, you got to diversify. And then all of a sudden you have like a Pinterest account, you're running ads on, you've got a Snapchat account, a Facebook account, you've got like a million accounts. Um, but now we're at the point where it's like, we, we actually have to diversify and like move away from Facebook and do, do Snapchat and do TikTok. Um, and we're, I guess one thing that people have said, they look at our business and talk like how we do certain things and content management, I would say is one of our greatest strengths. And everyone says like you reuse it across the board. Like we use things for TikTok, for Instagram, for Facebook ads. And it's a no brainer, but it's hard to actually get in the routine of doing it. So we we run, I think we we will do at least 10 new ad variations every week. And we'll run them and test them and run 10 more every single week, kind of forever. And that's been kind of great for us. But yeah, it's really just like making sure you always have new fresh content and TikTok's been easy to run because it's just like rerunning content that we're already using somewhere else. And it's, it's a little different. Exactly. And then, and then when you do get into, you know, that's what TikTok says, don't make videos, make TikTok. So even, and then as you get into the platform more, you should be able to even drive more success probably yeah, with, with custom stuff. For sure. But yeah, we're, we're still learning. But I think it's a good point not to take, if you're just starting out, this idea of diversification could really spread yourself thin, like still focus on the fundamentals in the beginning, get yourself to a business where your, your, your option to scale really is by diversifying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, we're at the stage now where we really have to spend more time diversifying. And that's, yeah, if you looked at our like board of goals, that would be definitely one of them. 
So you mentioned your content and and then you went right into your ad content, which is mm-hmm. like just whenever I hear brands talking about that kind of velocity is what we always talk about on the podcast. It's absolutely what's necessary to thrive in the current like social environment. Uh, just with ads, you may find an ad that'll hit and it'll run for a long time or ads also burn out these days even quicker than ever I'm finding. So you just yeah. constantly kind of need to be feeding that machine. Yeah, for sure. I listened to the episode, I don't know, two, two, two or three episodes ago you had. Yeah. And it's really, that's exactly it. And I, I don't think people truly understand the, the actual velocity and, and how quickly brands do it. Um, because yeah, you're, you're exactly right. We've had some ads run for a year and a half and they've been like the most successful ads, the most spend ever. And then we've had some ads run for a week, two weeks and they hit and then all of a sudden they fall off. So we're basically, I think you said it in your, in the interview, but we run it about an 80, 20 rule. So like 80% of ads are just iteration, 20% are fresh ideas. Um, and we just do that week over week and we just keep going. And then eventually the ads that hit, usually it's like the second or third version that hits even more. Um, so over the last month, I would say basically Facebook ads have been really hard for so many people. And for us, we've kind of remained fairly consistent. The US has been down a little bit, but I think it's kind of down for most people but it's still been really profitable. Um, and then our Canadian business is doing kind of better than ever. And it's really just because the ad copy and content we've changed and just we've, we've lost winners quickly and then we found new ones just as fast. So it, it's kind of evened out. That 80-20 rule is great because then because you're con- you're, that 80% then is just refining, just trying to find, you know, gold, whether it's gold coin testing or just, you know, just finding the elements in each ad that work best. Yeah, totally. Um, that, and that fuels your 20% as well. Even though you're going in a different direction entirely, you can still bring in aspects that you learn from that 80% to make sure that the 20% gets continually better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then the other thing, it's, it's sometimes actually really hard to come up with new concepts just, it, it sounds easy. It sounds like the fun part, but actually at times it's, it's quite difficult. How do you do it? How do you come up with new angles? Yeah, I guess what, what we do is our team has, we're, we're on Instagram, we're the Bush Buds and it's just sharing content that we see that we really like. And from there you can kind of try to replicate. Um, the tough part is we don't have like a creative agency in house or anything. So we're trying to replicate these like beautiful videos people have done on a smaller scale. Um, so at one point soon, that is something we might have to bring on is kind of videography to make like ads to, to go to a ne- next level. But for the most part, yeah, it's just sharing content, looking at ads library. We've got quite a few brands that we just find interesting. And actually, most of them are not even related to skincare whatsoever. They're just in like different industries, but they have cool concepts. Um, so we, we're always just checking in on kind of our favorites. What about SMS? I was, again, I was looking at your, at your Twitter feed and I saw about sort of an experiment that you guys ran, uh, sending out SMS messages, looking for responses. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your overall sort of SMS company strategy and then maybe specifically about that experiment? Yeah. So we've got two email and SMS. We have kind of a similar vibe to it. So we, we do a lot of plain text emails that are quite personal to, uh, the folks that were kind of asking. And then SMS, we do a lot of question-based. Um, so it's really just quick things like, hey, do you have a product idea for us? Or, hey, we're meeting with the lab shortly. Like we meet with them all the time. It's like, do you have any feedback or ingredients you're liking right now that we can look into? Um, so those questions actually, they drive tons of engagement. Um, and recently, the, the, the big one that we did was we sent, there's, we had no business sending this text message and asking for a question. What we said was, hey, we're launching... Um, or it was a picture and it had a new hat that we were doing as a free giveaway. 
So we say, hey, do you like my hat? Text back to find out how to get one. So we had like thousands of texts back being like, how do I get a hat? How do I get a hat? And then we, we personally responded or we, we set up a few macros to, to send to them. But we actually, we read like every single text we got back and some of them were super fun and creative. Um, so those things, what, what we've realized is it's helped, especially asking for product suggestions has been just unbelievable because it validates our roadmap. And it also allows us certain customers, we can say like, hey, we're actually doing that. It's going to launch in Q4. So people get really excited for those. And for us, like we're happy to give away our roadmap if, if someone brings up the idea. Um, so yeah, no, those have, those have worked well. well. You just have to have the staff to, to be able to handle them because um, it, it is a, a lot of work every single day. It's one of those sort of things that doesn't scale in a way, right? That, that, that we talk about on the podcast a lot is that just that personal touch that you can get. I can imagine it would take a couple of your employees like a lot of their time responding to all that. Yeah. If you do something big, like a campaign where you ask, it's basically the whole team gets together for the day and just fires through them all. Um, but our, our strategy for how we do say SMS and email, um, we have, we, we actually have two emails that we know get such a response that at certain times, if like email volume is up, we just shut those flows off because they get like, I don't, I don't know what it is. I think it's close to like 15% response. Wow. Yeah, so we, when we're getting too many of those, we just shut them off. Um, and then we turn them back on when we're ready. Um, but yeah, we're, we're actually, the customer service team is just two folks right now. So it's, they're, they get pretty busy at times and we all chip in and help uh, in Georgia's whenever we can. Nice. Oh, and a, a, a Georgia's or Gorgeous uh, fan, that's great. What, what platform do you use for your email and uh, SMS? Yeah, we use Klaviyo um, for email and it's been great. Uh, we use MailChimp in the early days and, and turned off and then, Right now, we use S, uh, Postscript for SMS. Nice. And they've been great great for us to work with. Uh, we tried the Klaviyo email and SMS and had a tough time with it, I found. Um, so for now, we treat them as kind of two different marketing models versus like melding them together. Got it. And I bet lots of people have different opinions on it. Um, but I actually feel pretty good about the, the two separate channels altogether. Clavio has come on as a, as a full half sponsor of the newsletter and podcast. So we love it when we get to name drop them. Nice. Their email is incredible. Yeah. It's uh, moving from MailChimp there. It was, that was at the point when we were going from say $150,000 a year to the 1.8 million. It was, they were at the start of that transition. And have you done that all internally, like your whole email program, or have you leveraged any outside resources for that? No. So for, for our company, for every single email content creative, um, we do in-house. Um, so our, our team is basically uh, a marketing manager, kind of runs it all and brand growth. And then we outsource um, pay, like paid ads. And um, we brought on a consultant to, to help us. And we work kind of very close all the time. But that took, that took a long time to, to outsource. Um, and for me, I ran all the ads for the first, I think it was four, almost four years. Wow. Which got, uh, yeah, up until about a month ago, I did every single image in an ad that you'd ever see on Bushbomb. And you did the image in Canva or something? Yeah, no, I used Keynote. Uh, yeah, I used Keynote for all of those, which was um, not ideal. Now I use Illustrator. I'm a little more advanced, apparently. Oh, good. <laughs> Highbrow. Yeah. I saw another great thread you wrote here on customer service. You mentioned it earlier. How pivotal has customer service been in terms of your focus for growing the brand? Yeah, so that's that's one thing I've been pretty passionate about is we, we've we kept customer service in-house just for the reason that um, I think right now we're so new 
that it's so critical critical to get all the feedback. And we keep spreadsheets on what people say for like, hey, your roadmap, you should do this, you should do that. Um, obviously, you're not going to 100% listen to exactly what the customer says, but it's been great for validating ideas we've had, as well as like build new new ideas going forward. So I think right now we're so critical to have customer service like close and in-house, but in the future, we'll, we'll grow and scale and We'll have a remote team, but right now customer service is kind of all in office. We're all like together. We're chatting about new ideas every single day. So that's been, uh, yeah, I'm just really passionate about it in the early stages being a part of the team. Can you think of a point where customer service, like a specific point maybe where, where customer service really fed uh, a product insight that helped you either develop a new product or potentially developed a new angle to sell existing products? Yeah, so the one was actually our specific um, uh, dark spot treatment. So that that product wasn't in our roadmap. We didn't have eyes on that at all. And we actually got a lot of customers just saying, hey, I struggle with this skin challenge. Um, you guys should make a product. It, it fits with what you're doing. So that, that one, literally, we had no idea that we, we weren't thinking about it whatsoever. And then we had so many customers after our first, I would say, first wave of really strong sales a lot of the repeat customers were kind of saying those things. Um, so that, that drives it. And then actually probably the, the number one thing it drives for future things is scent. So if we have any sort of aromas for products, that, that almost always comes from an idea uh, through a customer kind of reaching out or, or replying to one of our emails. I wanted to go back into, because we, we talked about how in the beginning you sort of, uh, you forewent uh, wholesale uh, to focus specifically on D2C to develop, it's so smart to develop that that direct connection to your customer, which you've mentioned through customer service and all these things. It's so critical to get that ember glowing, um, you know, through those methods. But it sounds like you've now revisited wholesale. Can you talk a little bit about that, um, about that process and, and what that's been like? Yeah. So yeah, the early days we started direct to consumer. It was so time consuming to kind of bring on wholesale. Um, so now we've split it up into what I call direct to consumer. And then I, we have like direct to consumer B2B is kind of what I, I call it. So that's, that's really the like self-serve B2B customers. So we, we're, we've, we've started to build that out. So we have uh, a lot of people sign up, they go through the, the flow, they get approved and then they become a wholesaler bush bomb and they buy their own products. So that, that's been a nice transition. It was a lot of work to figure out how to make it so they can do all of those things. But now that it's running smoothly, it's really nice. And we have a lot of email flows set up for those customers. It's excellent. And then now we're moving into the like larger retail plays, um, which we haven't uh, landed many big retailers yet. We're in the process with quite a few. And that all of a sudden, like big retail is really, you got to have like the right fulfillment partner or do it in-house. You have to have someone on the supply chain side managing it. You have to be great at all kinds of things. Packaging has to be like world-class. So that's our new, I would say, focus and priority. Um, next to D2C will, I think, always be our number one. But on the wholesale kind of large retail, we're putting a lot of focus this year to, to really expand. Because, um, yeah, right now we're not in, in really any big retailers yet. Now, as CEO, it sounds like you have at this stage in your company relatively, you know, r- relatively small. Still, not in terms of revenue. Like that's that's a, that ratio between staff and and revenue sounds amazing. But wh- where do you find your focus as CEO these days most? The main thing that I've kind of taken on, especially, is the roadmap. Um, so working on where we're going and what kind of our product line will take, um, as well as what we do is we work a lot with kind of not. F- 
people to get financing from, but we take a lot of advice to help like plan the future of the company. So I'm, I'm taking a lot of calls with say, say investors who are giving us advice who might want to invest, but they're not quite there yet, or we're not there yet. So I, I'm kind of managing that side. Um, and then the other thing, which has been really hard um, for me to understand to take on is really just like setting the goals for the team. So like w- what, what do I want the folks to work on and, and trying to stay higher than the tactics so then they can they can decide what those are um but that that's super hard because i did the tactics for the first five years so I, i'm still in that that mindset but yeah so my, my day-to-day would really look at building out the roadmap and the positioning of how we're positioning the company and then helping the team do i would say kind of strategic things when it comes to um say the value of the company so a, a basic example is I'm really hardcore about kind of our Google Drive and our organization and making sure we document everything and have the folders all set up um, because I think in the future, it'll just make new hires lives easier. And then also say investors or, or anything like that, they'll know that we have all the documents, everything we need because it's there. So my, my life is kind of finding those opportunities and making sure we're set up to kind of look after them. Um, and then there's the other side of it, just like the finances and like, how much kind of income we have per order and what, what can we do with that and the spend that goes out. Um, so a little bit of that, but I try to give the team as much autonomy, but uh, doing the tactics for five years makes it hard. And that's where the goals come in. I'm going through this right now, actually this week, I, I've got meetings set up with my team next week to lay down my thoughts on, on the high level goals based on the roadmap. And it, it you know, you, you mentioned it earlier. It's like when you're in the trenches and you're all working together, it's very easy just to see the work that's directly in front of you, but you get so much benefit by aligning with your team on goals because then th- it just allows them to have more autonomy because they know what their goals are. They can kind of go head down and run at that goal. Yeah. I realized how much easier it is because like the one thing I was doing was, I would say, we need to set up this tool. We need to do this. We need to do this. And then what I realized is I didn't actually, we didn't actually need to do any of those things. Um, I needed to say, we, we want to have, say, imagine we did three, five testimonial videos in the next quarter. Like that, that seems like a pretty reasonable goal. Um, but if I didn't say that, the team might work on other things. Whereas now I said, I said that and they're just getting testimonial videos left, right and center. And they're like, why did you say five? That's such a low number. And I'm like, because we haven't done it before. We've never had testimonial videos. Um, but now that I gave them that goal, it doesn't really matter the tool. I was trying to say, set up the tool that we're doing. We pay for it. It does this. They're saying like, oh, we're just emailing customers quickly and getting them. And I'm like, well, maybe we don't even need the tool. So it, it was me kind of pestering them. And now I'm just kind of opening it up to say, hey, figure out how to do it. You got, you got it. Um, and they're showing the results pretty quickly. Great advice to founders out there. Uh, I have a quote here that I wanted to ask you about. It came from the pre-interview here. You talked about the death of a D2C brand and, and what that looks like. So I, I, like, what do you consider the, the death of a D2C brand? What's, what's the biggest fault that a, that a D2C brand, brand that's had some success can, can sort of do? Yeah, maybe, maybe that's a bit harsh. But at, at uh, the same time, I, I really do think as a D2C brand, you have to innovate a lot and you have to bring out new products. You have to nurture your audience and kind of keep them engaged. Um, Cause even if you are a product that's a replenishable product, um, you still want to keep them on different things. Cause maybe they'll grow out of your product or, or something will happen. You, you have to keep it really interesting and expand. Um, and if you really want to scale revenue, like the, the number one way will be to bring out new, new items that, 
people really like. And for, for us, I think in most D2C brands is you'll have one hero product and it'll probably be 80% of your revenue. It's probably the 80-20 rule. Like you, you'll have something that drives everything. Um, and our business, what, what we're trying to do is, you know what, we, we want to strive to have a second hero product in a different category, which it's maybe aggressive to do, but at the same time, that's us like innovating for the future. So I, I think if we stuck with our one hero product, there'd be like several other incumbents, they'd come up and then we'd have lots of competition. And I think that's how you can potentially die as a D2C brand. You, you just don't do something new and you don't bring something else to market. So our goal is every quarter, let's launch new product all the time. You guys also have to innovate on that marketing side. You have to constantly be innovating in the way you're connecting to your consumers. I, you know, we just had Kellogg's. We just released our Kellogg's podcast last week. And I, I, I'm really interested in the way that these new CPG and D2C brands are going to end up building companies. Because I, I think about Kellogg's, I think about Unilever, and it's like they're, they're innovating like crazy too and innovating probably in the last year more than they have probably in the last 10 years potentially uh, in some ways. And I'm just really interested with these big brands. It's like they would they would get their relationships with their stores, with retail, and they could just kind of, those would be the channels of growth. Whereas with D2C, like you really have to be innovating in all the ways that you can, whether that's in, in how you connect to your customers, in your marketing channels, in your angles as you're constantly doing with the velocity there, and then specifically in products as well. Yeah, no, 100%. And that, that episode with Kellogg's, I think they said something interesting about they spend a certain amount to see if they're going to have an effective product. And that's something we've never done. Um, what we did is we launched a, a limited edition product. But in the future, that's one strategy we want to actually do. Um, now that we've locked down supply chain, we're a bit better at it. Um, we can actually do kind of smaller runs of something and test it for a quarter and see if it sells. And if it does really well, bring it back. So that, that's one way we want to kind of de-risk the company or take out any of the concern of, hey, we're launching a product every quarter. Well, we're going to launch one, but know that if it doesn't work after three months, we're going to pull back. And if it does work, we're going to accelerate. So that, that's just like taking their advice. That's something we, we want to do. But as you build out supply chain, obviously, it's, it's tricky to manage that. Um, and you'll have probably a sellout period at some point. Um, but for us, we've, we've sold out quite a few times and it adds a little bit to the hype. Um, but it's always disappointing for sure. Yeah. When, when you can't get that bomb and you need it, it's uh, it's problematic for people. Yeah. <laughs> for One sure. more question about Amazon. What's been your Amazon strategy? Have you launched there yet? Um, no, we haven't launched on Amazon yet. It's one that I think over the years, things have changed. I've like listened to a lot on just like the valuation and kind of how investors value those Amazon sales, whether it's like below D to C. It seems like these days, Amazon sales are starting to be valued similar. Um, so that that's actually going up. So yeah, we actually had a meeting today about, about Amazon and how we want to tackle it and what we want to do. Um, but yeah, no, right now we're not on Amazon. Um, our, pro our priority, I would say, is let's grow on the, the retail front and work with some kind of large retailers. And Amazon's something that we don't want to miss if it is such a big opportunity. And I, think, I really do think it is. Um, but right now we're kind of holding until a couple other moving pieces fall and then then we'll really consider Amazon for sure. Cause it, it's the search on it is just massive. And you guys will be pretty well positioned maybe versus other brands just because of your, your recognition and the way you've actually branded your product as the problem it solves in a way, right? I imagine that's going to help. Yeah, exactly. And that, that actually has helped a lot for us just on Google search. So I, I imagine Amazon might be a bit more difficult, but in general, yeah, like ingrown hair treatment is very specific and actually Googled quite a bit. 
So yeah, I, I think we're well positioned to go on Amazon. We're just the, uh, it's always that like, what do you turn off and what do you keep going? And we're kind of in this like stuck phase trying to navigate the waters of Amazon. And uh, I think soon we, we probably will. Or you just bring on a specialist agency like Pilot House. <laughs> I didn't know you, you did that. Oh you yeah. Know, you've actually talked uh, with a lot of agencies just to understand kind of who's going through it. And what are the, I don't know what you call it, but what are like the actual structures that you can do with different agencies? There, it seems like there's many different ones. Um, so yeah, we're, we're eager to chat with anyone actually. It's, we're in the phase of like, we probably won't launch yet, but we want to understand it. So we're just like learning with uh, different people. Well, we have launched our creative agency. This, this, all this is, by the way, this is just one long pitch uh, for, for Pilot House. <laughs> but uh, no, this is basic. I wanted to ask quickly, we've got just a few rapid fire questions. Can you name a couple other D2C brands that, that you're a big fan of, either the products, their marketing, both? Um, I would say uh, Summer Fridays is beautiful. They do a great job. They're launching products left, right, and center. Um, just incredible. Um, there's one other brand called Takis, I think it is. And from a branding perspective, I really admire kind of what they're doing and how it all looks. And then, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of websites. We, we're launching a new site, so we're going through kind of a lot of the skincare side. And uh, really admire MyBilly and what, what they do. They've just got like an incredible website, branding, just beautiful, clever, smart. Um, so yeah, th- those are a few for sure. But Summer Fridays is by far the one that um, we look up to the most. Nice. Summer Fridays. Very cool. I'm just looking at all these. Nice. We'll list them in the show notes. Here's the next question. If we uh, gave you a $50,000 grant to spend on your marketing, where would you put it and why? Oof, that is a tough question. Um, I think what I would do is probably spend like half of it on like creative um, and get people to like do videos and all kinds of different things. Um, and actually, I'd probably spend a good $25,000 on some sort of larger campaign or, or the whole 50,000 50, on, a, on a big influencer campaign because 50,000 would go a long way. Um, and I would rather do it as a influencer campaign where we partnered more so, so we could use the content in our ads, on our website, that kind of thing. Whereas most influencer campaigns are, it's a post, it goes up at this time and then you can't use the image. So I, I think I would spend more on getting the images and being, being able to use them in creative. I love it. Yeah, that's what we, we we propose all the time with our with our creative, making sure that you can reuse that creative either through a whitelisted type scenario or or directly just in ads. I, I think that would be a great idea. Do you have uh, in your mind like who your ideal influencer would be? Um, we we talk a little bit about it. Like the I think that our ideal influencer would be someone who's very vocal and like a female who's very vocal and actually talks a lot about kind of real challenges with their skin or, or whatever it might be. Um, that's something that we're, we're always on the lookout for. And we haven't, we actually haven't looked at any like massive celebrities who are in that, who are doing that. Um, we seem to find these like niche um, influencers who talk a lot about what, what we talk about. I heard someone talk about Instagram versus TikTok the other day, and they said Instagram is where people put, you know, their best lives, their best selves. Like you're going to look at someone else's Instagram feed and you're going to feel bad. If you're going to go through someone's TikToks, you're going to find out more like how maybe depressed they are or anxious they are or like it's a lot more transparent uh, TikTok is versus something like Instagram. So I could see that being a really good platform for you. Like the amount of funny women or men that I have in my feed that are just like laying their sort of emotions and their thoughts and their insecurities bare uh, actually might be a really, really great fit for what you guys are doing uh, in, in the pubic region. 
Yeah, for sure. I'll have to get the team. What they say is at night when they're in bed, they go on TikTok and Instagram and that's how they find most of our um, influencers we partner with. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's a great idea actually. Cause for us, honestly, the truthful thing about our content and also our influencer campaigns is the more real they are, the more effective it is. And whether it's like, even on Instagram, you'll see like before and after pictures from us, the more real it is, the better it does. So that that's, our strategy to, to keep as much of that. But at the same time, in Instagram, you want to make it look nice in case a retailer is looking at it. You can't have all real. So it's it's a tough balance to have. But yeah, the, the most effective content is for sure real. And like people want something heartfelt and like something that's changed your life. Like that that really kicks in for people. And they love not taboo, but but you know things that not illicit either, but just like the hint of something, you know, bikini line or so. You, you just those yeah, kinds yeah. of things just just are such hooks as well. So I really think you'll you'll have some success on TikTok when you yeah when you jump on there for sure. Okay, cool. So if people want to get in touch with you, you're active on Twitter. Uh, how do you suggest that they do that? Yeah, just just follow me on Twitter or send me a DM on Twitter. I'm uh, I find I'm kind of a yo-yo on Twitter where I'm I'm really active and then I'm not very active. So I'm trying as best as I can right now to be as active as possible because I'm kind of shocked at how much good content is on Twitter and how many great kind of DTC founders are out there chatting on Twitter. So yeah, feel free to engage with me there. I'd love to chat kind of with anyone. And uh, yeah, no, this is this is great. I, I'm a huge fan of the newsletter. I, uh, I find it's the most tactical newsletter and it gives very specific concrete things, whereas most, most other newsletters are... Um, kind of news related. So yeah, no, I, I really appreciate and kind of love uh, kind of getting the news that everyone comes in. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.